Monday morning. Hello, humans. Hello, hello, humans of the world. Humans of Minnesota. Humans of the world. Uh, I think I'll go with that even more. Um, how are you all? Happy Monday. Happy May 20th to you. Um, spring has finally arrived in the Twin Cities. Um, don't don't blink because it won't be here when, if you do that. But nonetheless, it has finally arrived. And Ellie is happy because I get to go out and ride my bike um, more and more frequently than what I... Um, what I do, I, last week I got to ride it nearly 100 miles. Um, not all at one stretch, but it was really nice to be able to do that. Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio, um, where we talk about idealism and idealists. And, um, and uh, I had hoped to have a guest for this show, but you know what? It did not work out. So you're stuck with Ellie Krug talking head for this show. Sorry. Uh, but hopefully I'll try and make it interesting for you. So I've got a hodgepodge. Um, but of course, as always, it's about idealism. And I also have an update on a story that I did for you, oh, about a month and a half ago. So what do you know about that? And so, but I want to start um, with talking about technology. Um, you know, um, many of you are listening right now from maybe your computers, okay, certainly, or your iPhones or, or Androids. Um, and many of you, I mean, many of you who are listening to me right now and seeing me on Facebook, hey, Facebook, how are you? Um, Facebook Live. Um, many uh, remember what it was like before we had computers and smartphones, okay? So those of you who do remember it beforehand, were alive beforehand, um, not, if you're not alive right now, you're not listening to my voice, I just want to make that point. Um, but many of you who were before the computer or the digital age understood what that was like and then understood the transformation that our society has gone through as a consequence of the digital age, the information age. And for the most part, um, in terms of um, consumers and the general population, the advent of the digital age, the information age, coincided with the turn of this century, the 21st century. I mean, we I didn't get my very first uh, um, desktop computer until 1994, and I went to Best Buy one day, spent, I think, 2400 bucks to pluck down this thing that weighed about 90 pounds onto a table and, and uh, heard beep for the very first time. Okay. So that was the digital age. That was actually the, uh, the, the technological shift that we humans um, in contemporary times went through. Well, this is not the first time there have been changes in the way that humans interact in the world. So I want to go back to the early 1900s. So this would be going from late 1890s to the early 1900s. <clears throat> and there was another technology shift, another big social change that occurred back then, and that one involved photography. Yes, just like um, how computers existed here in the country in the 1950s and 60s, but mainly in businesses and the government, Photography was also prevalent in America, in the world, for the last third of the 1800s. But photography and photographs didn't become an instrument for social change. That's where we're heading. Remember, the show is about idealism. Photography didn't become an instrument for social change until the turn of the 20th century. One of the architects of that social change was a young, idealistic photographer named Lewis Hine. Um, I've got to tell you, before I started doing this piece, researching this piece for you, I had no idea who Lewis Hine was, and that might be a name that you do not at all recognize, but you very well may recognize his photos, and I'll get to that in a second. Much of what I'm going to relay to you comes from a biography of Lewis Hine um, out of the International Photography Hall of Fame and Museum. I didn't even know if that existed, but it sounds pretty darn cool, don't you think? So here's the story. 
Lewis Hine was born in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 1874. His father had been a Civil War veteran. Okay, so think about that. Um, think about how he bridged um, generations and, and, and bridged um, c- uh, cultures because Lewis Hine lived until 1940. Lewis Hine's father died when Lewis was 18 years old making Lewis the primary breadwinner of the family. This had him then working in a furniture upholstery factory six days a week, 13 hours a day, for $4 a week. He held that job for several years and then became a custodian at a school. All during that time, though, understanding, um, certainly when he worked in the factory, what it was like for children, literally children, to work. Now, we've got to talk about what it was like in America back at that time. Well, hold on, Ellie. We'll get to that. So eventually, uh, Sine went and became a teacher. And then through great luck, much of what happens in the world is about having luck. And I understand that now so very well. With great luck, he got a job in New York City to teach nature and geography at the Ethical Cultural School. That's the, that was the name of the school, the Ethical Cultural School, which catered mainly to immigrants of Eastern Europe. So remember, in the early 1900s, this great immigration wave going on in the country. Back then, we welcomed immigrants. Um, and uh, in New York City in particular, I mean, the city was growing by leaps and bounds, and they were that just like we have charter schools here that cater to particular communities, they were having schools in New York uh, City that catered to particular communities. By luck again, school headmaster asked Lewis Hine to become the school photographer. It's not clear whether Lewis Hine had any photography experience before that, but because he was asked to be the school photographer, um, he took that role. And that led to class trips to Ellis Island. Remember, it's the early 1900s. We have immigrants coming to America, past the Statue of Liberty, um, to Ellis Island, um, where they were just get, literally getting off the boat, to quote a phrase. And Lewis would take his classes there and document, uh, to, to document the arrival of immigrants, and he would start taking photographs. Eventually, Lewis Hines started going to Ellis Island all on his own. And he soon realized the power of photography as a way of educating others about the realities of life, as I like to say, about surviving the human condition. Lewis Hine uh, started getting his photographs published in various educational journals, and he started to acquire some cachet about his work. While in New York City, Lewis <coughs> attended Columbia University School of Sociology. So he was on his way to become a sociologist or a social worker, um, where he then met people from the National Children Light Labor Com- uh, Committee. So now I will talk about what it was like in the early 1900s as it related to children in the workplace. The landscape there was far different than it is today, of course. Um, back then, in the late eight, you know, in the late nineteenth uh, century, early twentieth century, um, it was common, very, very common, for children to complete maybe only elementary or middle school, and then to go start working and earning money that to support their family or provide for their family. I mean, we had, you know, you would have kids as young as ten, twelve, teenage, young teenagers for sure, working in factories and in mines. Um, doing very dangerous job, working around very dangerous equipment. And like Lewis Hine, when he had gone to work at the upholstery factory, they were working 13-hour days, six days a week for pittance in terms of wages. But back then, it was no different America than it is now. People with power and money had great, great sway. And back then, people with power and money liked cheap labor, and children were a form of cheap labor, and they were also an endless supply of employees. Um, Like today's issues that persist because people will not act, because they don't have bravery, because they aren't willing to make the hard political choices or decisions, the issue about child labor was not getting resolved. 
And so um, the National Children Labor Committee went to Lewis Hine and said, Lewis, we want you to help us. And at this point, Lewis's idealism really became triggered. And for a dozen years, between 1904 and 1917, Lewis Hine traveled across America, but primarily in the South, documenting children working in extreme conditions. Um, he couldn't do this very easily because um, it was dangerous for him. There was, as I said, a lot of power and a lot of money at stake about keeping children as a form of cheap labor in America working. And so Lewis Hine had to use pretext to get into factories. Sometimes he told factory owners he was a Bible salesman or a postcard salesman or a photographer of industrial machinery, and he would get in, and then he would squirrel away, and then he would find children to photograph. Um, and his photos show children's children and kids as young as 10 to 12 years old, dirty and grimy, standing next to dangerous machines. The National Child Labor Committee published these photos, which shocked the conscience of the nation. Think now of how in our country today, it's again, we're back to photography, but now we're back to videos on cell phones. Think of police-involved shootings. Think of people shaming, people going after people in supermarkets or restaurants because they speak with an accent or, or, or speaking in a, in a different language than English. It's the same concept, okay? And so the National Child Labor Committee started publishing Lewis Hines' photograph. Um, and importantly, voters began pressing legislators for change because in part of these photographs, bringing home to them, driving home to them the reality of what was going on in America, driving home to them the injustice that was occurring, because of all of this, including Lewis Hines' photographs, child labor laws start to, started to be enacted. And it was this photography, this new powerful tool um, that was instigating this important social change. Frankly, as an idealist, I love it. I love learning about this. I love understanding this, that you have these tools at your, at your fingertips. And for example, right now you are listening to one of those tools. You are listening to Ellie Krug, idealist, working on you, trying to get you to want to change the world and get out of the, get off the Barco lounger and to go forward. Anyway, I, di I, digest, I digress. So... Um, Eventually, Lewis Hine would go on and, and become go to World War II. He would go to the Balkans and photograph Red Cross relief efforts. And then after the war, he worked for social change um, organizations like the National Tuberculosis Committee and the American Clothing Workers, where he photographed people at work, what he called work portraits. And you may recall my recent show, um, I think last week, with Chris Farrell talking about the value of work for people, and then referencing Studs Terkel in his book um, about work and workers. Lewis Hines, though, his most famous work was to document building of the empire state building in the 1930s, early 30s. To do that, often he was hanging from a basket, protruding out from the girders a thousand feet in the air so that he could take photographs of the workers as they worked. And as I researched Lewis Hines, and heard and read about his Empire State Building series of photographs, I remembered that last year I had been at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I had bought note cards. I am a note card writer. Um, I believe in the value. I still believe in the value of the, of the written word. And as I'm reading this about Lewis Hine, I'm, I'm remembering that one of the note cards that was in this box of note cards from the Metropolitan Museum of Art was a photograph of a very uh, a summer photograph of a very, very tanned um, iron worker uh, straddling a um, iron beam, um, which was obviously the part of the building of the um, 
Empire State Building. He's. Uh, I'm looking at the card right now as I tell you this. He's uh, standing there, very, very tanned. All he's got his shirt off. Uh, he's uh, got holding a cigarette. And in the background, you see the Chrysler Building in all of New York City. Very, very famous photograph. If if um, if you ever if you want to Google Lewis Hine Empire State Building, this photograph will come up. Well, I grab. I went to my box of photo of from the Matt. Uh, the cards and darn I looked at the back and it was by Lewis Hine and I just thought that was pretty darn cool if you ask me so I already knew about Lewis Hine I just didn't understand the significance of this photograph and this photographer um, unfortunately luck did not always go Lewis's Hine's way and he eventually lost his patrons resulting in great financial loss he became destitute he lost his home and savings and died in a state home in New York in 1940 at the age of 66. But thanks to the International Photography Hall of Fame and some other resources, the name of Lewis Hine and his work is still alive. Um, most importantly, his photos represent a legacy of an idealist. Legacy of an idealist who continues to this day. And I'm really happy that I was able to tell you about Lewis Hine, American photographer, idealist, and agent for social change. When we come back, I'm going to uh, continue on with the show. I'll give you a little reminder of uh, an update on a show that I did previously. Thanks so very much. At Better Futures Minnesota, our purpose is to fuel and guide our men's desire to turn their lives around and walk a new path toward better health and success. We are intent on changing the costly systems and practices that produce poor results and perpetuate the chaos and cycles of dependency experienced by men who have faced incarceration. We are building a movement that supports personal transformation and a healthy, vibrant community of men. Visit us at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn how you can support our movement. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP, or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. I'm Candy Braffle, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings Magazine and host of Green Tea Conversations, a new show for people who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and play a more active role in their family's well-being. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts who share the latest in natural holistic approaches in a fun and informative way. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversation as we awaken to natural health. Visit us at naturaltwincities.com. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Hello to my soul gets it right. Can any human being ever reach that kind? 
Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, you know, I'll tell you, um, Lewis Hine, I just, one of the things I love about being on this show, about doing this show, is that I'm actually forcing myself to become self-educated on a number of things that I would never, ever, ever come across. And and for those of you who are interested, if you go to the AM950 website, if you Google LE 2.0 radio, what will come up is a listing of every one of my shows, which has a fair amount of description about what is in the shows. And and, and we're and this list is is growing. I mean, we're up to a number 70 at this point. Uh, this is show number 70 for LE 2.0 radio and I'm kind of thrilled to be able to say that. And and so, but you'll see all of these um, different things that I've talked about. And, and it may be a resource for some people. I don't know. But anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there. All right. What I'd like to do very quickly now is an update on a show, on a, on a piece, a segment that I did maybe a month and a half ago. Remember, I talked about um, the very first, the 1968 Miss America pageant, and um, which which was um, noteworthy because it was the very first time, very first time that um, there was a possibility of a black colored. Remember, I used the phrase black color, and I used the phrase white color because white people don't believe they have a color. Uh, where um, black color contestant could be, but there was the, nobody came up through the ranks for the '68. Uh, Miss America pageant. However, um, because of dis, uh, distrust and because of the fact that the system was not working for black colored people, um, there was a separate black Miss America pageant um, that was that did go um, through in 1968. There were only 11 contestants, but but it was the beginning of finally recognizing really that you need to that the Miss America pageant really needs to get going because in the 30s they had had refused to allow black color women to be in the pageant. All right, I'm bringing you up up to date, giving you an update here now. And that is this. Um, uh, In a piece uh, on CNN by uh, uh, Kendall uh, Trammell, uh, dated May 5, 2019, she reports that for the very first time, Miss Miss USA, Miss America, and Miss Teen USA are all black women. In twenty in twenty twenty, excuse me, twenty nineteen, this finally happens. So um, over the last several weeks, um, here are the following uh, winners of the various contests. Contests and a little and just a, a tidbit about their um, background. So for Miss USA, um, Chelsea Christ, a lawyer who is admitted to practice law in two different states. And who is working for prison reform? Um, Chelsea Christ was crowned Miss Amer- Miss USA. Excuse me, Miss Teen USA. Uh, uh, Kaylee Garris um, is noteworthy, apart from the fact that she's got wonderful credentials, but noteworthy because she said, "You know what? I'm going to be in this pageant, and I'm just going to let my natural black hair, black curly hair, just be here." And uh, she's, like, proud of that, and I thought that that was the greatest thing. And, of course, she's stunningly beautiful. And then Miss America. So it is a trifecta here. Uh, Nia Franklin, who is an opera singer, um, has shown up and, and uh, was, um, was crowned Miss America. This is a big deal, everyone. And I'll tell you why it's a big deal, because... Very often in our country, I mean, we remember, I mean, we're at a place where there's a whole lot of polarization and a whole lot of people thinking, will, will things ever change? Will things ever get better? Okay. And it has taken 50 years. All right. I agree. 50 years from 68, 51 actually, um, to get to this point. But we now have for all of the beauty pageants, for all of the crowning achievements uh, for um, women, at least in that regard, in that realm. There are a lot of way, other ways for women to get crowning achievements, but in all, at least in those in the pageant world, we have three black color women um, reigning 
I think that that is a heck of a sign of progress, if you ask me. And so I am just so incredibly thrilled to report this to you. And, and the takeaway from this is please remember, as we go, I mean, there is progress. Things are changing. Yes, glacially, they are changing. But they are. And, and that's because we have people pushing this, because people are far more open-minded than what you would think based on looking at social media, looking at the news, all of that stuff. Remember, and this goes back to things that I've told you about before, that you know, people really have good empathetic hearts. People really want to be open to other people. They do. I believe that. It's just that they're afraid. But if you give them a way to be open, if you give them a platform or a, a vehicle on how to be open, they will be. I mean, the pageant process, obviously, now they have rules that it's going to be equal and all that stuff. At any rate, I just think that this is a wonderful thing. And I wanted to make sure that I updated you when it came across my radar. So there you go. Okay, well, listen, um, we're going to take a break uh, here, but if you like what you hear, will you visit my website at elliekrug.com? Will you email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com? I love hearing from my listeners. I really do. And, you know, I talk about the show. You can go to the show. It's on podcasts. It's on Apple iTunes. You, you, can, you can get this podcast all over the place. And please tell others about it because it's really starting to develop a following. Thanks. We'll be back in a second. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and designed jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. Visit the wine bar at Cafe Latte and enjoy a unique handcrafted pizza and glass of wine. The perfect place for an intimate night or an evening with friends. Choices range from spicy Italian sausage and sweet roasted peppers to the one-of-a-kind nacho chicken pizza layered with blue corn tortilla chips. The approachable wine list offers over 30 by the glass with special emphasis on wines from Washington State. End your night with one of Cafe Latte's melt-in-your-mouth desserts. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Tom Hartman here letting you know how you can save money with All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that it's too expensive and you need lots of money down. The truth? Solar is available for little or no money down. And if you have a great site for solar, you might even save money right away on a monthly basis. So don't wait to switch. You'll see your investment pay off the sooner you switch to All Energy Solar. So start saving today and visit allenergysolar.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. My first Toyota and the vehicle which made me fall in love with Toyotas was the RAV4. Now, Toyota is just teasing me as they have an all-new, fully redesigned RAV4. It's gorgeous. A distinct exterior that pops and a refined interior which has everything you want and room to move. And the big news is the RAV4 now comes in a hybrid version. Remember, every new Toyota comes with Toyota Care. Two years of free maintenance. Test drive the new RAV4 today at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. I wanna hold the hand in 
And we're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. All right, everyone, we'll listen. Um, uh, I started out the show by talking about the turn of the century, and I'm actually going to go back to it. Um, actually, I want to go back to um, 1909 uh, in Minneapolis in Prospect Park. And as it turned out in 1909 in Prospect Park, uh, there was a uh, family um, that built a house. That family happened to be um, black color, African-American family. Um, and they built a house in what was before that predominantly, no, I think exclusively, a white color neighborhood. And what resulted from that was a great amount of acrimony in the neighborhood with people coming to the household of the uh, black color family and telling them they weren't wanted in the neighborhood, that they needed to move, that they needed to get out. There were committees sent by other neighbors and the whole, and you know, going and talking to this family. And to their credit, the family did not move. They stayed. But what this was, and I'm, the reason I'm telling you about this is I want to highlight a hero of dealing with racial segregation in the Twin Cities, um, a woman named Lena Smith. But I also want to alert you to, in case you did not see it or hear about it, uh, a, a film called uh, Jim Crow of the North, um, that um, in episode 20, uh, Jim Crow of the North is a PBS special about Jim Crow across America, but episode 20 is about um, Minneapolis and the Twin Cities. Um, and this was um, in part produced by Twin Cities Public Broadcasting. Let me give you um, the trailer for that uh, show. There's this very persistent myth that northern cities never had formal segregation. The South had Jim Crow. Look at those signs. Well, racial covenants did the work of Jim Crow all over the North. The law of the streets, the law of the courts working in consort to discourage blacks from moving into white neighborhoods. We're talking more than bricks and mortars and windows. We are talking about people's lives, their values, and their humanity. So if you've not seen uh, Jim Crow of the North, all you have to do is Google it, and you'll be able to actually grab the episode. It's an hour-long episode, and it's well, well, well worth your time. But out of that episode and about out of um, some other information I got, I wanted to highlight a woman named Lena Smith. Lena Smith happened to be, um, was a black-color female lawyer in Minnesota, and she actually happened to be the very first black-colored woman admitted to practice law in Minnesota, and that did not happen until 1921. Lena Smith, and, it, and her middle name is O, so you may hear her referred to as Lena O. Smith, grew up in Iowa until her father died when she was 20 years old. Her family then moved to Minneapolis. Once in Minneapolis, Lena Smith became, believe it or not, a real estate agent. She was the only black color real estate agent in Minneapolis. And as it turns out, she, she was very used to being the first and being the only one doing things. And, and as in terms of her life story, she never actually married um, because she believed um, in her cause that her causes um, took precedence. Um, talk about idealist. So, uh, she was a real estate agent, um, and while working as a real estate agent, she saw how black color persons and families were discriminated against using r racial uh, restrictive covenants that you just heard on in the clip and redlining. For those of you who are not familiar with redlining, that was, a, that was and to a certain degree continues to be a process by which commercial lenders make decisions about who they are going to provide credit to, in part on the basis of the color of that of the credit applicant's skin. And for many, many decades, redlining was such that if you were a black color family in Minneapolis, you could only get a loan, a mortgage, 
um, for a certain part of Minneapolis, which happened to be North Minneapolis for the most part. They would not provide you with loans for housing in other parts of the city. Restrictive covenants are where um, placed on the deed of the, of the property that um, is for sale is a rule, is a, requ- a, a covenant, which is a, like a condition that anybody buying that property, could, if they were other than the color of white color, could not buy the property, that the property could not be sold to people. And that, so when I played you the clip of, of uh, Jim Crow of the North, um, racial uh, covenants started becoming, racial restrictive covenants started to come into vogue, in part as a result of that 1909 Prospect Park incident where um, the black color family built in Prospect Park and refused to leave. So in 1916, after working in the real estate field, um, Lena O. Smith, Lena Smith, um, enrolled in law school. And she was at the predecessor of William Mitchell Law School at the time. It was called Northwestern College, or Northwestern College, I believe, Law School. And while in law school, she became involved with the NAACP and helped to instigate, excuse me, helped to investigate um, a number of racial-related incidents in the Twin Cities and in Minnesota, including a lynching incident that happened in Duluth. When she graduated from law school in 1921, she was only one of a handful of black-color women female lawyers in the United States at the time. Talk Talk about being a pioneer and talk about being brave. As soon as she was admitted to practice law, uh, Lena Smith began filing lawsuits to fight housing and employment discrimination. Um, In one case in particular, um, involved uh, Arthur and Edith Hill, an African-American company, a couple, excuse me, a black couple who had purchased, black colored couple who had purchased a home in a predominantly white neighborhood in South Minneapolis. Um, The uh, Lees endured threats from the neighborhood, and um, and tensions exploded. There were near riots, excuse me, around the home. People were throwing stones and taunting the Lees, while the Lees' friends, who were mainly black color, surrounded the home in solidarity. Um, And police attempted to keep the peace. Um, the Lees originally had a lawyer that advised them to um, sell their home, go take a vacation, get out of town, and then sell their home. But they fired that lawyer to their credit, and then they hired uh, Lena Smith. And Smith said, um, nope, uh, hold strong, make a stand. Um, and eventually, white-colored people got tired of um, bothering the Lees and the controversy went away. Um, Lena Smith practiced law all the way into the 1960s um, and remained active with the NAACP. At one time, she headed the Minneapolis NAACP. Um, uh, And uh, in 1965, she was an invited guest to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration um, when he was elected president uh, following, of course, the assassination of President Kennedy. Um, Johnson was uh, dutifully elected the following year in 1964 and then sworn in in 1965, and Lena Smith was invited to his inauguration the following year. She died. Lena Smith is such an important figure in Minnesota history as well as national history that her home um, was added to the National Historic National Register of Historic Places, her home in South Minneapolis. Um, and so, uh, you know, if I had more time, I think that Lena Smith could actually be the subject of a very prolonged piece here, an expanded piece, because of her significance here in the Twin Cities and in Minnesota, and really, frankly, for the nation as an example of what it takes in order to be an idealist. I mean, the dedication that's involved, the, the risk, the professional risk, the personal risks involved, and I haven't even talked about the personal risk, but you've got to know that 
there were times and again and again and again that she was challenged about what she was attempting to do to right wrongs. You've got to believe that the um, slurs and the stereotypes and all of that stuff, that they were thrown her way, and yet she persisted. There's that phrase Elizabeth Warren made popular. But she did. Lena Smith was the original persister, one of the original uh, persisters. And so we're very lucky to have, have her in Minnesota, and I am honored to be able to tell you about Lena O. Smith, idealist and Minnesotan who helped change the landscape. Okay, well, when we come back, um, I'll do my C block. Um, please visit my website at illykrug.com. If you like what you hear, tell others about this show. And I would love to hear from you at lejkrug at gmail.com. And when we come back, we'll be back. Um, I'll be talking about my C block and uh, about my work. Thanks. Bye-bye. Better Futures Minnesota is a social enterprise which helps men achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. We need your help. By donating time or funds to our cause, you can support us and promote a healthier environment. By hiring our deconstruction crews for your next residential or commercial project and shopping or donating building materials or appliances to our reuse retail warehouse, you are supporting Better Futures Minnesota and your community. Please visit BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn more. On Tuesday, May 21st at 7.30 p.m., Temple Israel in Minneapolis invites you to join them for Voices 2019, their premier annual event. This year's voices will be Anna Navarro and Van Jones. Anna Navarro is a well-known Republican strategist, political analyst, and contributor to CNN and ABC's The View. And Van Jones is an activist, author, CNN political contributor, and host of CNN's Van Jones Show. This event will be moderated by Barack Obama-appointed ambassador to Morocco, Sam Kaplan. All are encouraged and welcome to attend this intriguing dialogue. General admission tickets are $50 and doors for general admission open at 7 p.m. Sponsorship opportunities are available for a private reception and dinner with the speakers prior to the program. Purchase a silver sponsorship to savor wine and hors d'oeuvres or a gold sponsorship to enjoy wine and dinner with Anna and Van. Sponsorships start at just $500. Tuesday, May 21st is approaching quickly and the event is selling out fast. Call and secure your seats today at 612-374-0342. Visit templeisrael.com benefit for more information. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years. Celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Finding the best foods the Twin Cities has to offer is easy with EatLocalMinnesota.com. Offering the top local and independently owned restaurants, EatLocalMinnesota.com has everything from burger joints to cocktails and fine dining. It's Greek to Me has been a family-owned Lynn Lake landmark since 1982. Under new ownership, the Janakis Karis family offers classically inspired modern Greek cuisine in a sublime space with gracious hospitality. Be sure to visit their charming bar and explore wines and specialty drinks from Greece. Find It's Greek to Me at 626 West Lake Street in Minneapolis or at itsgreektomemn.com. Crooner's Lounge and Supper Club invites you to check out their beautiful facilities for your next special occasion. Book your wedding reception, retirement party, business dinner, or other special event with confidence, knowing their expert staff and award-winning chef will make it a big hit with your guests. Call today to get a quote, 763-571-9020. Back on AM 950, Ali 2.0 Radio. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that story about Lena O. Smith. And please go watch that documentary, um, Jim Crow of the North. Um, incredibly important. 
You know, and part of this goes into the idea that um, for those white color listeners on this, uh, listening to my voice right now, which of course would be probably the majority of listeners, it is our obligation to educate ourselves about the plight and about the suffrage and about the oppression inflicted on people of color other than white. Um, it is not their quotation marks around that phrase, that word, their responsibility to educate us. We should be going out and learning on our own because that is the way it works. You know, um, people are already burdened who are other than white color. They shouldn't have to be burdened by trying to teach us. All right, so let me shift uh, to my work, my idealism in trying to change the world. And as you know, uh, many of you know, much of my work involves training on human inclusivity. Inclusivity is just easily defined the extent to which a human feels as if they matter to an organization or another group of humans. If you feel that you matter, you will come or stay with that organization. If you feel that you won't or don't matter, you're not going to come or you're going to walk out the door once you're there. I'm very unconventional in my approach. I don't use a PowerPoint. I don't stand behind a podium. I'm walking around. I'm engaging. Um, I call on people in the audience. Sometimes I have people stand up um, and interact with me. Sometimes I have people stand up and interact with each other. And I know that at times I make people uncomfortable. I too do tell them at the beginning of uh, my trainings that I will make them uncomfortable. You know, and uh, sometimes I think I'm pretty naive. Um, yeah, at age 62, yeah, I'll admit it. I'm actually, I will readily admit that I have a great deal of naivete in my approach to the world. I will admit that. Um, but sometimes I naively believe, well, if I tell you I'm going to make it uncomfortable, that that takes care of it. And that's really not true. It doesn't. A part of my work um, as I do the training is I try and keep people happy. I mean, you want to make people laugh. I mean, not like it's a comedy show, but you've got to inject humor into it because otherwise with this topic about inclusivity and about dealing with people who are other, I mean, it could be so darn depressing um, because um, of what's going on in our country. Most of the time, I pull it all off. Most of the time, my combination of humor, I'm very self-deprecating, my combination of being relatively humble and of um, engaging people with a smile, most of the time, it works. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, a result of me using trial. I remember I was a trial lawyer for almost 30 years. You know, I got used to engaging people on the stand and... and um, you know, there are a couple of tricks in my bag that I use. So most of the time, as I said, I pull it off, but not always. So as of late, um, within the last uh, couple of weeks, in the course of actually one week, I made two mistakes that left people hurting. Now, mind you, um, I'm never, um, nothing was intentional on my part. I never want to intentionally hurt anyone. But one of those incidents in which somebody, somebody's feelings were hurt and, and somebody suffered, one of those incidents involved me not paying attention as two people interacted in the room. Um, I was keeping my eye on the clock instead because uh, we were running out of time and I was thinking in my head, I still need to get X, Y, and Z done before the clock runs out. That's what I was paying attention to and I was not paying attention to how two people in the room interacted. And that was a big mistake on my part. And one of those two people was hurt um, by the interaction. Um, and thank goodness the person who had been hurt, um, thanks goodness the person who had been offended, um, later told me about it. They sent me an email, a very, very long email, Thankfully, I mean, long in the sense that she, they fully explained it uh, to me about why they were hurt and why they had been offended. Uh, that, of course, by emailing me, I was able to op uh, have the opportunity to apologize to this person. And remember earlier in the show, I said I'm a note card writer, and this person got a note card from me as well with more apology. But, you know, I'm human. And I've been carrying that mistake and another one 
for several days. Um, I do not like making mistakes, particularly when it hurts people. I know I'm not alone in that, okay? I know that most of you hearing my voice right now are the same way. Um, and I'm a perfectionist, I will admit that, although probably you listening to this show with um, a lot of our pauses and my ums and, and uhs and sometimes a little bit of dead air would wonder how much of a perfectionist is she. Um, but I am. And, um, but you know, the story I'm relating to you really is more, more than just about my words or action. I mean, I know that this training is not an exact science. I know that. And for me, the key here is to learn from my mistakes, and there were some mistakes here, I will readily admit them, to learn from my mistakes and to work to change on how I do certain things, um, including I need to better pay attention to what's happening or not in the room. And of course, in the end, this is really all about surviving the human condition. Sometimes it's far more challenging to survive than at other times. The last week, two weeks, have been that for me. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, another bit of Ellie talking from her heart. Maybe one of the hallmarks of this show. Maybe something that you actually like about this show. So, there you go. We've got another one in the can. Um, please tell others about the show. I'd love to take this show nationally. That is the ultimate goal. A big thanks to our sponsor, Brending Electrolysis. Let Bev know that I sent you. She does incredibly great work. She is phenomenal at what she does. Um, a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you know how I feel about you. You are just so marvelous. And to you, my listeners, a big thanks to you. Thanks for tuning in every week. Thanks for grabbing me on the podcast. Thanks for sharing about the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for putting up with a talking head, although I don't think it went so bad, do you? Um, I'll be back next week with another segment. Thanks so very much. Take care. Do well. Be good. Bye.